Good morning, church. Good morning. I want to encourage you to find in your Bibles Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17. We'll be reading there in just a moment. I'm calling this this morning, How to Fight a Battle in the Real World. How to Fight a Battle in the Real World. In the real world, uh, how do we fight battles? If it's a military battle, we fight a certain way. If it's a political battle, we fight a certain way. But let's just think about military things. If we're fighting a battle in a military conflict, what do you want to have on your side? Anybody? What? You want to have the Lord. Okay, that's good. All right. Absolutely. Amen. Right answer. What else do you hope to have in a military conflict? What's that? Weapons? Knowledge. Intelligence. Strategies. Leaders. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I want weapons. I want big ones. I want an army. I want the bigger one. Uh, I, want, I want to have all of those things. And so when we think about a battle in the so-called real world, we think in terms of, of all of those things, weaponry, leadership, strategies, um, uh, intelligence, information. We think of all of those things. And if I have the biggest guns and I have the big, best strategies and I have the best leaders and so forth, I'll win that battle. That's what we think. Now, in the real world, if somebody enters a battle... If someone enters a battle, I'll do it up here. If somebody enters a battle, and they come into that battle, and they do this, do you think they're going to win? Well, typically, we think of a battle in the real world that if somebody comes, and they get on their knees, and they raise their hands, we think that they are doing what? Surrendering. They haven't fought. They haven't done anything. They're not using weapons. They're not using intelligence or strategies or leaders or all these other things. We think they've given up. We think they've quit. But this morning I want you to see that those who know what the real world battles are and what the real world consists of actually fight like that. They actually win battles like that. If you'll take your Bibles now and look at Exodus 17 and um, in verse 8. Here's what God's Word says. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, 
And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Now listen to the summary. Verse 14. When the, then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is My Banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Would you pray with me? Father, would you take the reading of your word, and by your Holy Spirit, may the truth of it cause the truth of it, to become crystal clear in our minds, settle into our hearts, for those of us that know you in a way that is permanent, lasting, life-changing, and guiding us from this day forward in a way perhaps we have never understood before what it means to fight a battle in this world. For we ask it in the strong name of Jesus, amen. You know, what strikes me as I read those last three verses of the passage, chapter 17, is when God says to Moses, I want you to write this down as a memorial. There's something about this that is so significant. I want you to remember what has happened here today. Now, they would go on and fight other battles. They would win. But God never said to them after those battles, I want you to write down a memorial. He did after this battle. And so there's something extremely significant about this battle and something that I believe is significant to you and me. Something about this that God wanted Joshua to know and the people to know. Something he wants us to know. The context for this battle is the people of Israel have been delivered from Egypt. You know the story, or you saw the movie, or you read the scripture. The people of God were in bondage, slavery, for 400 years plus, and God supernaturally intervened through a series of devastating plagues on Egypt to cause the mightiest nation on the planet to set free the weakest people on the planet the people of God, physically weak compared to this nation. And so they were delivered. They were delivered by God. And when they came out on the other side of the experience, you know the story. The Red Sea was divided, was parted, and they passed through it safely. And when they were on the other side, Moses had lifted up the rod of God and the ocean and the sea had parted. And then on the other side of it, uh, when it was time, all the people were safe. He closed it back up again, raised up the rod of God. God caused that water to come back. And whatever scholarship will deny that historical event and say, well, it was just a wind that blew marsh water around and created a dry spot, whatever it was, was it was enough to drown the guys that were in the water. And the people with Moses began to sing a song. 
And it's recorded in Exodus 15. And this song is long, and they are, they are praising the Lord, just like we did this morning. They are praising the Lord. They are excited about who he is. And the very last phrase of the song, listen to what they said, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. And that's the very first time that God is referred to in any way like a king. It uses the word of what kings do. They reign. And our Lord, they say, will reign forever and ever. There is no God like this God. There is no God who can intervene in history like our God. Three days later, they're in the desert. They come up on some water, they're thirsty, and the water is bitter. They begin to complain. Same people who sang the song three days earlier, our Lord will reign forever and ever. They began to complain to God. Uh, not to God, they began to complain to Moses. They complained, complained to Moses about Moses. Why have you brought us out here? Why have you done this? This is terrible. You're a terrible person. We, we're going to die out here. Did you bring us out here to die? And they just complained. And, and they went through a process where Moses was led by God to drop a, a unique piece of wood into the water. And that bitter water became sweet. And it was a lesson for the people of God. Not much longer after that, the people were complaining because they don't have anything to eat. And they said, you know, it would have been better for us if we went back to where we were. Go back to the past, sitting by the pots where we had lots of meat, where we had lots of bread, where we had everything that we liked and we enjoyed. Yes, we were under slavery, but that was better than this. We're out here. We're going to die in the wilderness. Why, oh, why, Moses, have you brought us out here to die? And then you have the exchange between the Lord and Moses, and God begins to rain manna from the sky onto the people of God six days a week. And they're able to gather it up and eat and be full. And they learn a great lesson about who God is, you would think. And then not long after that, now they haven't even gotten to Sinai yet. They don't have the Ten Commandments yet. They've not had an encounter with God on the mountain yet. But a few days after, the manna's been falling from the sky. They get thirsty again. They don't have any water. They complain again. It says against Moses. Each time it was against Moses, against Moses, against Moses. And Moses is saying, look, you don't understand. I'm not in charge. You're complaining against God. And they go through a process once again. And God tells Moses, raise your rod up. I'm going to stand before you, Moses. My presence is going to be with you. I'm going to stand on that rock. I want you to hit that rock, and water is going to gush forth, and the people's thirst will be satisfied. And once again, they will learn something very important about me, or at least have the opportunity to learn something very important about me. And then Amalek, attacks. I want you to see the characteristics of the battle in verses 8 and 9. It says, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim. It says, Moses said to Joshua, choose, choose us some men. Go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God. 
in my hand. That's what Moses said to Joshua. This is the very first battle that they ever fought. They'd never fought a battle before. These are slaves. They've been set free supernaturally. God's provided for them on at least three separate occasions since their deliverance. And this is the first battle that they have ever fought. It is the first battle where they were going to have to do something to win it. Now up to this point, they just complained and God did something. Complaining is not going to work this time. They're engaged in a battle where the stakes are high. These are real people. This is a real world battle with real weapons, real strategies, real leaders, and they want to attack and kill the people of God. It is deadly and the stakes are high. What I understand immediately as I read this passage is that there is an unseen dimension to this fight. There's an aspect to this battle that the people may not be aware of it. Joshua, by the way, this is the first time Joshua appears in the scripture. Joshua gets a clue. And Joshua is very important to the future of the nation. God knows that. And, and so there's a, a real battle taking place, but a few people understand, at least at the beginning of the battle, that there is an unseen dimension to this battle that requires Moses and Aaron and her to do something that does not involve fighting with physical weapons, that does not involve fighting with strategies and methods or leaders and, and, and the best army training and all those kinds of things. It involves an entirely different approach because they are going to deal with the part you cannot see while the fighting that you can see is taking place. Amalek is merely a visible manifestation of an unseen battle that's taking place. They should have figured it out before now, the people of God. They have experienced years of slavery and oppression at the hands of the Egyptians. And at first glance, you and I might look at that. Indeed, Hollywood's looked at it. People have written stories about it. They read about the deliverance of the Hebrew children from Egypt. And what they see is, yeah, God did something. God did something. But here are these people. They've been in slavery for over 400 years. And here they are in slavery. And... Um, and was that slavery, the entire experience of that slavery, was that simply just something in the visible world, the real world that happens to people sometimes? Or was there not, over those 400 years, an unseen dimension to their experience? Now you can just write it down in the margin of your Bible or in your notes if you're taking notes, but in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, when the final plague was coming, when he was going to send the death angel, into the land of Egypt and all the firstborn of the Egyptians, including their animals, all the firstborn were going to die. And it was part of the judgment of God. Listen to what he says about that. This is the Lord. Listen to what he says. Exodus 12, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Now listen. And against all the gods of Egypt... I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now why is he executing judgment on the gods of Egypt? 
Scholars who studied these texts for years have realized that every one of the plagues was undercutting, undermining, and tearing down the strength of an Egyptian deity, an idol. But it wasn't an idol made just of wood or stone. It was an idol that people would pray to and would seek favor from. And behind the physical manifestation of that idol, there was a demonic, supernatural personality that was empowering or working through this belief system. And God not only devastated every single god and idol that they had through the plagues, but he makes it clear that in the final plague, what he is doing is he is judging these demonic personalities, these gods of Egypt, judging them. God doesn't judge wood and stone. And so he was all absolutely, completely defeating and destroying the gods of Egypt. Who was animating, leading, guiding the Egyptians in their oppression of the Israelites for over 400 years? The gods of Egypt. You and I need to understand, as they began to understand in this battle with Amalek, that this enemy, in this case, did not want to let the people of God go. He put up a fight. There was resistance. No matter what happened, they did not want to let the people of God go. Not only were the humans not wanting to let them go, but the demonic beings in the unseen realm, where the real battle lies, they did not want to let the people of God go. And so that slavery, that oppression, that attack on the people of God was animated in a world that we cannot see, but manifested in a world that we do see. And so there's an unseen dimension to this battle. And dear one, if you don't understand this, you are never going to walk with God as he intends you to walk with him with an attitude and a deep conviction of hope that my God reigns. You're not going to have it. There are specific ways that the enemy, the unseen enemy, will attack you as an individual, will attack your family as an individual. Just this past Monday night, I met with um, the church that we have helped to plant in Forest City, and we talked about how the enemy attacks you as individuals. He also attacks churches. There are specific ways that he attacks churches. You don't have to read in the book of Acts very long to see the different ways that he attacks the churches. And, is, and you can pull those things out, and we could talk about those even this morning. I just want you to grab hold of this truth, that there's an unseen dimension to everything that is happening to you as an individual and to your family and to your church and to your community and to your nation. When they complained against Moses, who was merely doing what God had told him to do, did they understand that there was an unseen dimension to their complaints? Did they understand that there was a spiritual battle taking place over their heart? And will they trust God? Will they trust God? Will they trust God? Or will they complain and whine and reject even Moses, who had demonstrated that God lives? 
And so these complaints came. And the people kept discussing their, their problems in terms of Moses, in terms of human factors, never realizing, never suspecting that there was an unseen dimension to what was going on, always blaming the messenger for things that only God can control. Now what if Moses had ignored the unseen aspect of this first battle? What if Moses, when they were attacked, Amalek had attacked them, what if he had said, Joshua, sick them. We are the people of God. We have weapons. We've worked hard for 400 years. We got muscles. We got strength. We may, we may not have strategy and military experience, but we have all these other resources, and we are able. We can. We can. God's done these things for us. Thank you, Lord, very much. We can handle this one. What would have happened if Moses had taken that posture? What would the rest of the Old Testament have looked like? The truth is, is that reality in the real world, as you and I call it, the real world that it truly exists, consists not just of what I can see. It also consists of what I cannot see. And I'm not talking about atoms, and I'm not talking about molecules. I'm talking about spiritual realities that are affecting you and me. There are unseen dimensions in every battle that you face in your life. If you do not accept that, then you are not in touch with the real world. You are out of touch. And I want to talk to you now about how the battle is fought. How is the battle fought? Look at verse 10. If I'm fighting a battle in the real world, and I hope by now you're thinking of your own battles, the things that are assaulting you, the challenges that you're facing as an individual or in your own home, how this battle is fought in the real world. In verse 10 it says, So Joshua did as Moses said to him, and fought with Amalek and Moses and Aaron and Hur, and went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Now, God certainly directs the efforts of the people of God. There is a, without question, we could talk about this a long time, there's an aspect of obedience here on the part of the people of God that was necessary for victory to occur. No question about it. But that is not the focus of the text, is it? You know, we would have fought in that situation whether someone told us to or not. Surely we would have tried to defend ourselves. But there is an aspect of necessity for being obedient and God will direct our efforts. But listen, no battle is won by our efforts alone. No battle is won by our efforts alone. We tend to glorify methods. We tend to glorify men in our culture. And I say we, I'm talking about me, we, all of us. Christian, not Christian, we tend to glorify methods and men. Over the years in talking with, with younger pastors and when we were friends and we were close enough for me to, to speak to them, they would be very excited sometimes telling me they were going to hear a certain preacher or go visit a certain church and see how they did it. Now, those words are very important. See how they did it. I've even seen in the the promotional materials 
that language. Come see how we did it. And you can do it too. Typically in that environment, there's a senior pastor who was responsible for their success. That's the implication. And the implication also is that if I go and I listen, I take their notebook and I, I, take, I take those principles home and I bring them back to my church and, I, and we all go and replicate the same methodologies of that particular church or congregation, then, then we will do it too. I'm talking with younger guys starting out we're excited about that, exciting about particular personalities. I would never discourage the heart of a young pastor ever, but I did encourage them. I said, go. You can always put more tools in your toolbox. Always you can learn. Always you can gather more information. There's always value in listening and learning from other people. That's always a good thing. That's not a bad thing, but listen. Listen. I can send you to another conference that will tell you to do the exact opposite of what this conference is going to tell you to do. And they did it too. And so I want to I encourage you when you go and you listen to someone like that, when you sit in that kind of environment, yes, put tools in your toolbox. You can always use more ideas. Those are always fine things. That's good. That's fine. But listen for something else. Listen for the unseen. Listen for that aspect of what happened and what they did that only God can do and that God is responsible for. And then you will understand why they did it. Rick Warren traveled for years as a youth evangelist in California. And even when I lived out there, people were coming out there to California to see how Saddleback did it. And they weren't anything like what they are today. I think there were only two or 3,000 people then. And they didn't have a building. They were meeting in schools. And you walk out in the parking lot to the to worship center and you got greeted a certain number of times. And and everything that they did was designed to help reach out to someone who was lost and didn't understand what was going on. All good ideas, all good things. But listen, what you need to know about someone like Rick Warren is that if you scratch that man, he bleeds scripture. And I've seen him criticized by other pastors because we always do that. When somebody's church is growing, it must be because they're doing something wrong. If they have a big church, that can't be of God. But if you scratch that man, he bleeds scripture. For years, he just memorized scripture. He immersed himself in scripture. He took every problem he had with the Lord to the word of God to try to understand what is God's answer to that problem. For years, pastors were enamored with John Maxwell. John Maxwell was a leadership guru. He had... had, Helped the church, Skyline Wesleyan Church in San Diego. It grew, it exploded. And he had conferences on Leadership 101 and and how to be a real leader and R-E-A-L. Each stood for different things. How to be this leader type person. He gave out all this great information, great motivational ideas, all these great things. And I tell guys, I said, go listen to him. You can always put more tools in your toolbox. But listen for the unseen aspect, the unseen dimension of someone that appears to be greatly blessed by God. Always listen for that. John Maxwell's case, long before he was famous, long before he published anything, 
He led his church to focus on prayer. Started a ministry called Pastors Prayer Partners where he just engaged people in praying, not just for him, but for the church. And they were partnering together in prayer for their church. The church exploded. It did grow. And on a personal basis, every Friday night, before he would preach on Sunday, every Friday night, John would spend the whole night in prayer on a personal basis, just with the Lord, all night, alone with God in prayer. You would never hear that in his leadership conference. You know why? He didn't think it was important. Doesn't everybody do that? You see, a lot of times these guys, these women, are unconscious of why even they themselves are being blessed. Sometimes they are not fully conscious of why that worked and that worked and that worked. Why did it work? Why did it work? Because of the unseen dimension of what God was doing, often in response to their prayers or the prayers of others around them. And so how's the battle fought? When the hands were raised, when the hands were raised, indicating complete dependence on God and communion with God, and that's all that Moses was doing in the battle, was just looking for relying on, depending on the presence of God with upraised hands. And as long as hands were up, the battle went their way. When hands came down, the battle went against them. Are you beginning to see why possibly God wanted them to remember this? Why he wanted them to remember how to fight a battle in the real world? If we are losing a battle for souls, if we are losing the battle for the things that we know God cares about, the thing that God wants to happen, look at our hands. Where are our hands? I know where our mouths are. I know where our bodies go. But where are our hands? Up or down? And then I want you to see how the battle is won, not how it's fought. That's how it's fought. I want you to see how it's won. Look at verse 12. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. His hands were steady. His hands were steady. His hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. There are two aspects to the victory. I'm going to use this expression first. Unified prayer. Unified prayer. People who came together, not one. In this case, there were three, but it was unified praying. There are battles in your life. There are battles in this church that will never be won until the church comes together to pray. A congregational emphasis focus on prayer and we will not win them unless we pray together that battle if Moses had been by himself that battle would have been lost so God has always done it this way time doesn't allow me to tell you the stories of how God has brought this information this insight about the unseen battle onto somebody's life and heart and that individual joining with another individual maybe three or four there were four young men involved in the revival in Ulster in Ireland in 1859. There were two little old ladies 
who were involved in a revival in the New Hebrides that lasted several years on the northern coast of Scotland. There were just two little old ladies. They had prayed for years and years and years and years. This is how God works. We pray together when we realize that, that there's an enemy. We're not going to do it if I don't recognize the real enemy. If I think the enemy is Moses, I'm not going to pray like this. And we have to agree that that enemy is to be defeated. Aaron couldn't say, Moses, you know, the people have been complaining about you, and here you are sitting up here. You're not doing anything except praying and being spiritual. There's a battle down there. I'm tired of standing here with you. I'm going to go down there. Unless we agree where the real battle is and where the real enemy is, we will not pray together. Often that involves relationships that have been broken that need to be healed. Where individuals become transparent with one another about their feelings towards one another. Unified prayer. Let me give you another insight from Moses on how this battle is won. Not only does it involve unified prayer, it also involves unceasing prayer. Unceasing prayer. There are battles that will not be won unless we pray without ceasing, unless, unless we pray without ceasing. Every time the hands went down, the battle was being lost, the praying had stopped. Every time the hands went up, the battle prevailed. You and I, we're not careful. We think, well, I prayed one time. I prayed, didn't I? Listen to the New Testament. Listen to Jesus. Luke 18. Then he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. There was a, in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Nor, now there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, Get justice for me, for my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, this is Jesus talking about the story he just told. Hear what the unjust said, unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him? 1 Thessalonians 1-2, we give thanks to God always for you making mention of you in our prayers. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Romans 1.9, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day. How do we learn to do this? As he leads, Lord willing, in January, February, you'll be hearing about opportunities to join with the church in unified and unceasing prayer. Until that time, how do we learn to do this? This week was my grandson's birthday. 
He turned two. He's almost learned to speak English. Almost. Um, I sent him a video. You'll never see it. I sent him a video, video singing happy birthday to him. It sounded like Coach Ogeron singing happy birthday. Happy birthday. Whatever. <laughs> Within five minutes, I got a phone call. Cal wanted to speak to his papa. I said, hallelujah. And I asked him what he was going to do today. He said something, and the word zoo was in there. So I knew he was going to the zoo. When he comes here, he likes to go to the park. He likes to go to different things. He likes to go to the park. He knows when he comes to me or to his Gigi, when he comes up to us, he doesn't know where the park is. He can't drive. He doesn't have a license. He can't even speak English. But he comes to us. If he wants to go to the park, he doesn't even know the way there. He comes to us. He's, he says something and that's unintelligible, and then, and then he, you say, you want to go to the park? Ah. And all he knows is that if Papa grabs me up, we're going to the park. If Papa lays his hands on me, picks me up, puts me in the car, we're going to the park. Do you know how to fight the battles in the realm that you cannot see? Do you feel like I got so much to learn here? I feel like a baby with my toe in the ocean. I, I know it's wet, but I don't understand this thing that's so big and so amazing. I don't know how to pray like this. I don't know how to do unified prayer. I don't even know where to start. I don't know how to pray without ceasing. I don't know where to begin. You know what Jesus says? He says, come to me. He says, come to me. He says, rest in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Just like a grandson grabs hold of his grandfather, knowing that the grandfather will take him where he needs to go, you and I, brother, sister, if I go to the Father and say, Lord, I don't know how to get there, but I want to go there. I don't know how to win these battles in that part that the pastor just talked about, the unseen dimension. I'm not even sure what that means. Lord, I want to win. I want to win. And if I'm supposed to pray without ceasing, Father, I want to learn. And so come to him. What battles are you facing? What battles are you facing right now in your life? If you were to come sit down with me as your friend and say, Don, this is a battle I'm facing. I'm, I'm dealing with something, my health. I'm dealing with something in my family. I'm dealing with something at work. What are the battles that you are facing? And if you're not facing a battle right now, then you're probably called to pray for somebody who is. And you soon enough will have one of your own. What are the battles you're facing? I would encourage you right now. Here's what we're going to do for our invitation. The reason we moved everything out of this moment in the service. There will be no announcements, no offering, nothing else going to happen except how you respond. I want to encourage you. If you have a Bible, if you have a piece of paper, or maybe you just can do it with your own mind. I, it doesn't matter to me. But I want you to just think about it. I want you to reflect for a moment. When, we, when I say go, I want you to reflect for a moment about the battles that you're facing. And how are you handling those battles? I want you to write it down if you can. Write down what those battles are. And for the next month and a half that we walk together as a church, I want you to sign up. I'm not giving you a piece of paper to sign up. I'm asking you as an individual to sign up and say, I want to go there, Pastor. 
I want to go there, Lord. I'm tired of getting beat up. I'm tired of one thing after another happening in my life, and I don't understand it, and I feel like I'm just flailing around, getting whooped. And I know, you know, most of us have walked with the Lord long enough. We know that everything in life isn't peaches and cream and roses and happy, happy moments. But we also know deep down that there's something that the Bible talks about that maybe we feel like we're missing. An attitude of hope, an attitude of victory, an attitude of joy and rejoicing always. An attitude that no matter what comes my way, I have a way of entering into that battle and fighting a real battle that gives me a distinct advantage and a confidence that I'm going to win when it's over. So write down your battles. Think about your battles. And then where you are, you can do it where you're sitting. Pastors will be down front. If you don't know Jesus, I invite you to come talk to one of these pastors. So I want to know more. They'll be standing down front like they normally do. But we're not going to sing. I'm going to ask you to, not yet, but in a moment, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Say, Lord, here are my battles. And I want to encourage you to take the first step in this war. And you can do it where you're sitting. Just close your eyes while you're sitting. Just a moment. You think about your battles. Say, Lord, I'm going to give you my battles. And I'm going to trust you. I'm coming to you. You only. I'm coming to you to fight my battles. And I will never walk and I will never fight again without you. And I encourage you to lift your hands. And after you've done that and after you have had that moment between you and the Lord, your response to the Lord, leave. You can go to your Bible study group, whatever is next. You're done. Okay? Take as much time as you need. We'll hold up the next service if we need to. But would you follow the Lord's teaching? Would you establish a memorial and say, look, I, today, November 13th, I'm going to fight differently. I'm going to fight differently, and I want to enter into this. Lord, I'm coming to you, just like Moses came to you. I'm going to learn, Lord, teach me, guide me, show me how to pray without ceasing.